Section 4 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 1, Chapter 4, Lucretia's Education. The cardinal's relations with Venazza continued until about 1482, for after the birth of Lucretia she presented him with another son, Giuffre, who was born in 1481 or 1482. After that, Borgia's passion for this woman, who was now about forty, died out, but he continued to honor her as the mother of his children and as the confidant of many of his secrets. Venazza had borne her husband as certain Giorgio di Croce, a son, who was named Octavian, at least this child passed as his. With the cardinal's help, she increased her revenues. In old official records, she appears as the lessee of several taverns in Rome, and she also bought a vineyard and a country house near Santa Lucia in Selci, in the Subura, apparently from the Cesarini. Even today, the picturesque building, with the arched passageway over the stairs which lead up from the Subura to San Pietro in Vincoli, is pointed out to travelers as the Palace of Vanozza or of Lucretia Borgia. Giorgio di Croce had become rich, and he had built a chapel for himself and his family in Santa Maria del Popolo. Both he and his son Octavian died in the year 1486. His death caused a change in Venazza's circumstances, the cardinal hastening to marry the mother of his children a second time, so that she might have a protector and a respectable household. The new husband was Carlo Canale of Mantua. Before he came to Rome, he had by his attainments acquired some reputation among the humanists of Mantua. There is still extant a letter to Canale written by the young poet Angelo Poliziano regarding his Orfeo. The manuscript of this, the first attempt in the field of the drama which marked the renaissance of the Italian theatre, was in the hands of Canale, who, appreciating the work of the faint-hearted poet, was endeavouring to encourage him. At the suggestion of Cardinal Francesco Gonzaga, a great patron of letters, Poliziano had written the poem in the short space of two days. Carlo Canale was the cardinal's chamberlain. The Orfeo saw the light in 1472. When Gonzaga died in 1483, Canale went to Rome, where he entered the service of Cardinal Sclafetano of Parma. As a confidant and dependent of the Gonzaga, he retained his connection with his princely house. In this new position, he assisted Ludovico Gonzaga, a brother of Francesco, when he came to Rome in 1484 to receive the purple on his election as Bishop of Mantua. Borgia was acquainted with Canale while he was in the service of the Gonzaga, and later he met him in the house of Sclafitano. He selected him to be the husband of his widowed mistress, doubtless because Canale's talents and connections would be useful to him. Canale, on the other hand, could have acquiesced in the suggestion to marry Venazza only from avarice, and his willingness proves that he had not grown rich in his former places at the courts of cardinals. The new marriage contract was drawn up June 8, 1486, by the notary of the Borgia house, Camillo Bene Imbene, and was witnessed by Francesco Maffei, apostolic secretary and canon of St. Peter's, Lorenzo Barberini de Catalinus, a citizen, Giuliano Gallo, a considerable merchant of Rome, Burcardo Barberini di Canaris, and other gentlemen. As dowry, Vanozza brought her husband, among other things, 1,000 gold florins and an appointment as solicitator bularum. The contract clearly referred to this as Vanozza's second marriage. Would it not have been set down as the third, or in more general terms as new, if the alleged first marriage with Domenica d'Arignano had really been acknowledged? In this instrument, Vanozza's house on the Piazza de Branchis, in the Regola quarter, where the marriage took place, is described as her domicile. The piazza still bears this name, which is derived from the extinct Branca family. 
after the death of her former husband she must therefore have moved from the house on the piazza pizza di merlo and taken up her abode in the one on the piazza branca this house may have belonged to her for her second husband seems to have been a man without means who hoped to make his fortune by his marriage and with the protection of the powerful cardinal from a letter of ludovico gonzaga dated february nineteenth fourteen eighty eight we learn that this new marriage of venazza's was not childless in this epistle the bishop of mantua asks his agent in rome to act as godfather in his stead carlo canale having chosen him for this honor the letter gives no further particulars but it can mean nothing else we do not know at just what time lucretia in accordance with the cardinal's provision left her mother's house and passed under the protection of a woman who exercised great influence upon him and upon the entire borgia family this woman was adriana of the house of mila a daughter of don pedro who was a nephew of calixtus the third and first cousin of rodrigo what position he held in rome we do not know he married his daughter adriana to ludovico a member of the noble house of orsini and lord of bassanello near civita castellana as the offspring of this union orsino orsini married in fourteen eighty nine it is evident that his mother must have entered into wedlock at least sixteen years before ludovico orsini died in fourteen eighty nine or earlier as his wife and later as his widow adriana occupied one of the orsini palaces in rome probably the one on monte giordano near the bridge of sant'angelo this palace having subsequently been described as part of the estate which her son orsini inherited cardinal rodrigo maintained the closest relations with adriana she was more than his kinswoman she was the confidant of his sins of his intrigues and plans and such she remained until the day of his death to her he entrusted the education of his daughter lucretia during her childhood as we learn from a letter written by the ferrarese ambassador to rome gian andrea boccaccio bishop of modena to the duke arcole in fourteen ninety three in which he remarks of madonna adriana ursina quote, that she had educated lucretia in her own house this doubtless was the orsini palace on monte giordano which was close to cardinal borgia's residence according to the italian custom which has survived to the present day the education of the daughters was entrusted to women in convents where the young girls were required to pass a few years afterwards to come forth into the world to be married if however infessura's pictures of the convents of rome is a faithful one the cardinal was wise in hesitating to entrust his daughter to these saints nevertheless there certainly were convents which were free from immorality such for example as san silvestre in capite where many of the daughters of the colonna were educated and santa maria nuova and san sisto on the appian way on one occasion during the papacy of alexander lucretia chose the last named convent as an asylum perhaps because she had there received her early spiritual education religious instruction was always the basis of the education of the women of italy it however consisted not in the cultivation of heart and soul but in a strict observance of the forms of religion sin made no woman repulsive and the condition of even the most degraded female did not prevent her from performing all her church duties and appearing to be a well-trained christian there were no women skeptics or freethinkers they would have been impossible in the society of that day the godless tyrant sigismondo malatesta of rimini built a magnificent church and in it a chapel in honor of his beloved isotta who was a regular attendant at church 
Vandazza built and embellished a chapel in Santa Maria del Popolo. She had a reputation for piety even during the life of Alexander VI. Her greatest maternal solicitude, like that of Adriana, was to inculcate a Christian deportment in her daughter. And this Lucretia possessed in such perfection that subsequently a Ferrarese ambassador lauded her for her, quote, saintly demeanor. It is wrong to regard this bearing simply as a mask, for that would presuppose an independent consideration of religious questions or a moral process which was altogether foreign to the women of that age and is still unknown among the women of Italy. Their religion was, and still is, a part of education. It consisted in a high respect for form and was of small ethical worth. The daughters of the well-to-do families did not receive instruction in the humanities in the convents, but probably from the same teachers to whom the education of the sons was entrusted. It is no exaggeration to say that the women of the better classes during the 15th and 16th centuries were as well educated as are the women of today. Their education was not broad. It was limited to a few branches, for then they did not have the almost inexhaustible means of improvement which, thanks to the evolution of the human mind during the last 300 years, we now enjoy. The education of the women of the Renaissance was based upon classical antiquity, in comparison with which everything which could then be termed modern was insignificant. They might, therefore, have been described as scholarly. Feminine education is now entirely different, as it is derived wholly from modern sources of culture. It is precisely its many-sidedness to which is due the superficiality of the education of contemporary women when compared with that of her sister of the Renaissance. The education of women at the present time, generally even in Germany, which is famous for its schools, is without solid foundation and altogether superficial and of no real worth. It consists usually in acquiring a smattering of two modern tongues and learning to play the piano, to which a wholly unreasonable amount of time is devoted. During the Renaissance the piano was unknown, but every educated woman performed upon the lute, which had the advantage that, in the hands of the lady playing it, it presented an agreeable picture to the eyes, while the piano is only a machine which compels the man or the woman who is playing it to go through the motions which are always unpleasant and often ridiculous. During the Renaissance the novel showed only its first beginnings, and even today Italy is the country which produces and reads the fewest romances. There were stories from the time of Boccaccio, but very few. Vast numbers of poems were written, but half of them in Latin. Printing and the book trade were in their infancy. The theatre, likewise, was in its childhood, and as a rule dramatic performances were given only once a year during the carnival and then only on private stages. What we now call universal literature or culture consisted at that time in the passionate study of the classics. Latin and Greek held the place then which the study of foreign languages now occupies in the education of women. The Italians of the Renaissance did not think that an acquaintance with the classics, that scientific knowledge destroyed the charm of womanliness, nor that the education of women should be less advanced than that of men. This opinion, like so many others prevalent in society, is of Teutonic origin. The loving dominion of the mother in the family circle has always seemed to the Germanic races to be the realization of the ideal of womanliness. For a long time, German women avoided publicity owing to modesty or a feeling of decorum. Their talents remained hidden, except in cases where peculiar circumstances, sometimes connected with the affairs of court or of state, compelled them to come forth. Until recently, the history of German civilization has shown a much smaller number of famous female characters than Italy, the land of strong personalities produced during the Renaissance. The influence which gifted women in the Italian salons of the 15th and 16th centuries 
and later in those of france exercised upon the intellectual development of society was completely unknown in england and germany later however there was a change in the relative degree of feminine culture in teutonic and latin countries in the former it rose while in italy it declined the italian woman who during the renaissance occupied a place by man's side contended with him for intellectual prizes and took part in every spiritual movement fell into the background during the last two hundred years she has taken little or no part in the higher life of the nation for long ago she became a mere tool in the hands of the priests the reformation gave the german woman greater personal freedom especially since the beginning of the eighteenth century have germany and england produced numbers of highly cultivated and even learned women the superficiality of the education of women in general in germany is not the fault of the church but of the fashion of society and also of lack of means in our families a learned woman whom men are more apt to fear than respect is called when she writes books a blue stocking during the renaissance she was called a virago a title which was perfectly complimentary jacopo da bergamo constantly uses it as a term of respect in his work concerning celebrated women which he wrote in fourteen ninety six rarely do we find this word used by italians in the sense in which we now employ it namely termergent or amazon at the time of virago was a woman who by her courage understanding and attainments raised herself above the masses of her sex and she was still more admired if in addition to these qualities she possessed beauty and grace profound classic learning among the italians was not opposed to feminine charm on the contrary it enhanced it jacopo da bergamo specially praises it in this or that woman saying that whenever she appeared in public as a poet or as an orator it was above all else her modesty and reserve which charmed her hearers in this vein he eulogizes cassandra fedeli while he louds ginevra sforza for her elegance of form her wonderful grace in every motion her calm and queenly bearing and her chaste beauty he discovers the same in the wife of alfonso de aragon ippolita sforza who possessed the highest attainments the most brilliant eloquence a rare beauty and extreme feminine modesty what was then called modesty pudor was the natural grace of a gifted woman increased by education and association this modesty lucretia borgia possessed in a high degree in women it corresponded with that which in a man was the mark of the perfect cavalier it may cause the reader some astonishment to learn that the contemporaries of the infamous caesar spoke of his quote, moderation as one of his most characteristic traits by this term however we must understand the cultivation of the personality in which moderation in man and modesty in woman were part and manifestations of a liberal education it is true that in the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries emancipated women did not sit on the benches of the lecture halls of bologna ferrara and padua as they now do in many universities to pursue professional studies but the same humane sciences to which youths and men devoted themselves were a requirement in the higher education of women little girls in the middle ages were entrusted to the saints of the convents to be made nuns during the renaissance parents consecrated gifted children to the muses jacopo de bergamo speaking of trivulzia of milan a contemporary of lucretia who excited great amazement as an orator when she was only fourteen years of age says quote, when her parents noticed the child extraordinary gifts they dedicated her to the muses this was in her seventh year for her education the course of study followed by women at that time included the classic languages in their literature oratory poetry or the art of versifying and music dilettanteism in the graphic and plastic arts of course followed 
and the vast number of paintings and statues produced during the renaissance inspired every cultivated woman in italy with a desire to become a connoisseur even philosophy and theology were cultivated by women debates on questions in these fields of inquiry were the order of the day at the courts and in the halls of the universities and women endeavored to acquire renown by taking part in them at the end of the fifteenth century the venetian cassandra fedeli the wonder of her age was as well versed in philosophy and theology as a learned man she once engaged in a public disputation before the doge agostino barbarigo and also several times in the audience hall of padua and always showed the utmost modesty in spite of the applause of her hearers the beautiful wife of alessandro sforza of pesaro costanza verano was a poet an orator and a philosopher she wrote a number of learned dissertations Quote, the writings of augustinius ambrosius jerome and gregory of seneca cicero and lactantius were always in her hands her daughter battista sforza the noble spouse of the cultivated federico of urbino was equally learned so too it was related that the celebrated isotta nugarola of verona was thoroughly at home in the writings of the fathers and of the philosophers isabella gonzaga and elisabetta of urbino were likewise acquainted with them as were numerous other celebrated women such as vittore colonna and veronica gambara these and other names show to what heights the education of women during the renaissance attained and even if the accomplishments of these women were exceptional the studies which they so earnestly pursued were part of the curriculum of all the daughters of the best families these studies were followed only for the purpose of perfecting and beautifying the personality conversation in the modern salon is so excessively dull that it is necessary to fill in the emptiness with singing and piano playing still the symposiums of plato were not always the order of the day in the drawing-rooms of the renaissance and it must be admitted that their social disputations would cause us intolerable weariness however tastes were different at that time in a circle of distinguished and gifted persons to carry on a conversation gracefully and intelligently and to give it a classic cast by introducing quotations from the ancients or to engage in a discussion and dialogue on a chosen theme afforded the keenest enjoyment it was the conversation of the renaissance which attained later to such aesthetic perfection in france talleyrand called this form of human intercourse man's greatest and most beautiful blessing the classic dialogue was revived with only the difference that cultivated women also took part in it as samples of the refined social intercourse of that age we have castiglione's cortigiano and bembo's azolani which was dedicated to lucretia borgia alexander's daughter did not occupy a preeminent place among the italian women renowned for classical attainments her own acquirements not being such as to distinguish her from the majority but considering the times her education was thorough she had received instruction in the languages in music and in drawing and later the people of ferrara were amazed at the skill and taste which she displayed in embroidering in silk and gold Quote, she spoke spanish greek italian and french and a little latin very correctly and she wrote and composed poems in all these tongues said the biographer bayard in fifteen twelve lucretia must have perfected her education later during the quiet years of her life under the influence of bembo and strozzi although she doubtless had laid its foundation in rome she was both a spaniard and an italian and a perfect master of these two languages among her letters to bembo there were two written in spanish the remainder of which we possess several hundred are composed in the italian of that day and are spontaneous and graceful in style 
the contents of none of them are of importance they display soul and feeling but no depth of mind her handwriting is not uniform sometimes it has strong lines which remind us of the striking energetic writing of her father at others it is sharp and fine like that of vittoria colonna none of lucretia's letters indicate that she fully understood latin and her father once stated that she had not mastered that language she must however have been able to read it when written for otherwise alexander could not have made her his representative in the vatican with authority to open letters received nor were her hellenic studies very profound still she was not wholly ignorant of greek in her childhood schools for the study of hellenic literature still flourished in rome where they had been established by chrysolerus and Bessarion in the city where many greeks some of whom were fugitives from their country while others had come to italy with queen carlotta of cyprus until her death in fourteen eighty seven this royal adventuress lived in a palace in the borgo of the vatican where she held court and where she doubtless gathered about her the cultivated people of rome just as the learned queen christina of sweden did later it was in her house that Cardinal Rodrigo made the acquaintance, besides that of other noble natives of Cyprus, of Ludovico Podocathro, a highly cultivated man, afterwards his secretary. He it was, probably, who instructed Borgia's children in Greek. In the Cardinal's palace there was also a humanist of German birth, Lorenz Beheim of Nuremberg, who managed his household for twenty years. As he was a Latinist and a member of the Roman Academy of Pomponius Laetus, he must have exercised some influence on the education of his master's children. Generally there was no lack of professors of the humane sciences in Rome, where they were in a nourishing condition, and the Academy, as well as the University, attracted thither many talented men. In the papal city there were numerous teachers who conducted schools, and swarms of young scholars, ambitious academicians, sought their fortune at the courts of the cardinals in the capacity of companions or secretaries, or as preceptors to their illegitimate children. Lucretia also received instruction in classic literature from these masters. Among the poets who lived in Rome, she found teachers to instruct her in Italian versification and in writing sonnets, an art which was everywhere cultivated by women as well as men. She doubtless learned to compose verses, although the writers on the history of Italian literature, Quadrio and Crescimbeni, do not place her among the poets of the peninsula. Nowhere do Bembo, Aldus, or the Strozzi speak of her as a poet, nor are there any verses by her in existence. It is not certain that even the Spanish canzoni, which are found in some of her letters to Bembo, were composed by her. End of section 4